Hello. Today is Thursday, November 4th, and you are at the bar with Jennifer Berseris and Inez Stepman of Independent Women's Forum. And you are also with one of our favorite colleagues and friends, Julie Gunlock. Hey, I- ladies. Um, so we're so excited to have three IWFers on here today instead of just two, especially since Julie is one of our favorite IWFers. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the effort by parents in Loudoun County, Virginia, to take back their public schools. Um, Loudoun County, of course, has received national attention um, in, in in terms of some of the events that have come to light through uh, Luke Rosiak's reporting and, and the reporting, investigative reporting of others Um and, and that really has shaped uh, the national conversation. It's shaped an election. Um, this issue of the content and what's available and happening in public schools, even in a place like Loudoun or, or um, some of our other examples are from Fairfax County. Now, these are these are blue counties, but they're, they're also um, sort of suburban, wealthy. Uh, you know, not too long ago, they were um, pretty pretty purple. Um, I believe that Mitt Romney uh, lost there only by like 8,000 votes or something in 2012. So these have recently swung to the left. Um, they're not like, my, my point here is that it's not San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you, you um, some people I think dismiss some of these stories and say, oh, this is just, you know, in the looniest places in in, uh, <laughs> in America. And, and um, Loudoun County is not that. Uh, but we, we really have Julie here to talk to um, about these topics today because she, in addition to all of her policy work with IWF, um, she is a Virginia parent, a Northern Virginia parent. Um, she's battled her own public school system for a long time. Um, and, and we've talked about that in the past on, on her podcast and elsewhere. Um, but uh, she's also the director of the Independent Women's Network, which is a sister or- organization of ours that is helping women across the country to organize and unite to deal with so many issues, including this issue of woke indoctrination in schools. So she's talked to a lot of parents in that capacity. Yes. And later in the show, we're going to be joined by Professor Philip Hamburger of Columbia Law School, um, who will give us a legal perspective on parental rights. But for now, let's tee up our discussion about Loudoun County with this brief video describing one of the major controversies there story that's making waves on social media. Parents in Loudoun County won answers tonight after two alleged sexual assaults in schools. Officials now confirming it is the same offender. Now the parents are suing the Loudoun school system, claiming the district's transgender bathroom policy is what allowed their daughter to be assaulted. The first attack was reported inside Stonebridge High School in late May, where a ninth grade girl says a boy forcibly sodomized her inside of a school bathroom. Alicia Brand is talking on behalf of the victim's family. And this is a really, really difficult time for them. I mean, their, their baby was sexually assaulted in the most heinous of ways. While the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office was investigating, a Loudoun County School Board meeting devolved into chaos on June 22nd, where the victim's mother is her Heard on cell phone video telling the crowd what happened. Behind her, the victim's father is being arrested for disorderly conduct and obstruction of justice. The family says they were provoked by other parents. Fast forward to October 6th. Inside Broad Run High School, another girl is sexually assaulted inside of a classroom. 
Prosecutors confirm it was the same boy. Now parents are calling for the superintendent's job. The night of the chaotic school board meeting, the board was discussing the transgender and gender fluid student rights policy, which allows students to use the restroom of their gender identity. And a school board member asked the superintendent. Do we have assaults in our bathrooms or our locker rooms regularly? I would hope not, but I would like clarification. To my knowledge, we don't have any records of assaults occurring in our restrooms. The superintendent told that to the board less than a month after the first attack. His false statement on June 22nd and his failure to keep an alleged assailant out of school are far worse and merit immediate termination. Story that's made. Sorry. Um, so obviously the story captivated um, the news cycle, although it got very little coverage from mainstream media right up until the New York Times stepped in to attempt to debunk certain aspects of it. So for example, they made clear that this uh, gender policy that was being discussed at the school board meeting had not yet been implemented formally in the school, although it's not clear at all. Um, let me let me see something quite obvious in common sense. If you do not have a policy of allowing, quote, gender fluid students to enter restrooms of the opposite sex, it's a little obvious when there's a boy sneaking into the girl's bathroom to hook up, um, which is, is apparently- well, it's, it's also true, is that there may not be a formal policy that's been voted on by the school committee and approved by the superintendent, but there may be an informal policy that's happening at the school. That's usually how things start. They Many times schools begin to implement things before they vote to have them go district wide. So, um, you know, just because there wasn't technically a policy that had voted on on the books doesn't mean that the school wasn't allowing it, condoning it, et cetera. That's right. And, and um, obviously that's exactly what um, this, this girl's parents were doing at the school board meeting. They were trying to voice what had happened to their daughter um, as part of the debate around this policy and how this policy could potentially perpetuate uh, those kinds of assaults. So that's obviously what they're trying to do. But Julie, what, um, you know, what's your perspective on all of this? Loudon is, is not all that far from you. It's, it's um, no. a pretty, actually, depending on traffic, it might be easier to get to Loudon than it is to downtown DC from, uh, from where you're at. So well, uh, how do you feel about all this? I actually live very, very close to D.C. It does take me a while to get out to Loudoun. And I will tell you, I do live in San Francisco. I live in the looniest section of of, of Virginia. So as a, I feel like I should like be a, an honorable San Franciscan because of how nutty. Um, just this, this um, just to give you an example of how crazy it is. You know, sort of this, obviously Loudoun's a great example of parents fighting back, right? Well, in Alexandria City, an actual employee of Randy Weingarten, who's the head of this teachers union, was selected, was ele elected um, on the school board. Okay, I mean, how does this happen, right? You'd think like of all people, right? When your resume says that you actually work for Randy Weingarten, you'd think, well, parents would be like, kind of disqualifying, especially this year. But not here in Alexandria. They uh, they like to try. We it's a mess here in Alexandria. But Loudoun County, you're right, is much more. I would say sort of dark purple. Um, it's certainly you know 
I think the Biden election, I think that they won, it, Biden won by, how much was that? 10 points, 15 points, something really large. Yeah, okay, it was even. It was, yes, it was, it was a blowout for Biden, but in the past, it's been more purple. Yeah. Right. Uh, but this year, what happened to Scott Smith, that is the father that you saw in that video. And the fact that they didn't just cover up the rape of that girl. And, and you know, it, it was horrible what happened to that girl. Um, but they transferred that student, did not alert the parents, transferred the students, didn't alert the parents at the new school, um, and again, covered it up. And there's other things about when Scott Smith got up to speak at that school board meeting, um, there was uh, some of the school board uh, members started texting each other. One got up to go and talk to it. So it seemed very coordinated in terms of not wanting him to get up to that microphone where he would have revealed um, this rape, which again was concealed by, from parents. And the whole narrative was, if you have any problems with transgender bathroom policies, you're a bigot and you know you have a problem with the LGBTQ community. And as they, as you, I'm really glad that you teed it up that way because that video was very, I think comprehensive in what we're dealing with here. Um, Virginia did pass um, a uh, sort of, you know, a an LGBT a, a sort of trans bathroom policy where if you're if you're a, a student who identifies as the as any sex that you want, you can go into any bathroom. And there were some concerns. And so, you know, the 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 thing is, what we're seeing here is a school board willing to keep things from parents because they didn't want to in any way. Uh, interrupt this sort of pro-trans, pro-LGBTQ narrative and and this policy, which they viewed as very progressive. And um, and so, you know, essentially revealing that there had been assault in the bathroom would have, would have complicated things for them. So they kept this from parents. And as a result, another girl um, was assaulted. So you have just total disrespect, not just for the parents, but also for the kids. I mean, my God, these kids are going to school there. Um, and they're transferring students. I mean, I have, you mentioned in my intro that I have fought with my own school district. One of the things I fought with them on, I can't even keep track of how many things I fought with them on, but one of the things that I fought with them on was my son being beat up um, in a hallway. It was filmed. They wouldn't let me see the film. They, cause they had all these security cameras. They wouldn't let me see the film. They wouldn't tell me if the child who, and they admitted, everyone said, you should, you should report this to the police. It was a violent attack. My son was hit from behind, sort of thrown across a hallway. And they said, yes, you should, you should report this to the police. The police came in, but then there was no record of it in the school records. So other parents, if you say like, how many assaults have there been in this school? My son's assault was not shown. They didn't tell me who the perpetrator was. They didn't tell me who, um, what kind of discipline he would get, even without his name attached. They wouldn't tell me if he was going to be, you know, um, uh, if he was going to get a detention or expulsion or what kind of, you know, discipline he would face. So as a parent, I'm left to just say, oh, well, go back to school. I hope, I hope they're monitoring it. You know, there's, they left me powerless. And yeah, in so many cases, they're more concerned with the privacy and the reputation Absolutely. of the perpetrator of a crime than, than they are with the safety of the student population. I mean, frankly, you, you know, you even saw that in some of the school shooting cases where, yes. you know, schools were well aware that a student um, had issues, was potentially trouble, had disciplinary problems and the community, you know, not being made aware and, and the school not taking action against, against those students. Um, for, I for think it's really things. important here. It's so hard for some people to separate this from the transgender issue, but I would I would caution parents, regardless of what you feel about that issue, even if you are in favor of people using 
you know, bathrooms, yeah. you know, with their, however they identify, you should still be concerned that your school committee, or at least this school committee, doesn't want parental input, doesn't want to know how you feel about it, and doesn't care how the students feel about it, and, you know, really, is, are, they're behaving completely undemocratically. Well, look, I, I think that this goes uh, hand in hand with some other things that we've seen in Loudoun County, Fairfax County, and, and in Alexandria, because a lot of people think Alexandria is a part of Fair, Fairfax County. It isn't. So these are three distinct and separate um, school districts. But in so basically, it's Northern Virginia. We're seeing incredibly graphic sexual content in school libraries. In fact, as you both know, IWF's um, made an ad showing the images. They blurred out some of the most graphic parts of it and then tried to get those ads to go in Northern Virgin Virginia markets. Um, well, we have a copy. Yeah, I we actually, oh, I'm us. sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't no, have. No, no, no. We, this is okay, perfect. There it is. There it is. <laughs> this is, this is uh, these are photographs of a book that was available uh, in the school library. Um, and, and here it's blurred out, but there was no blurring. Um, in, in the book. And in fact, we have our, our other colleague, Kelsey Bolar, um, went on the Waters. Joining me now to, to react, senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Voice and Loudoun County mom, Kelsey Bolar. Kelsey, this is just disturbing. And I'm not like a square guy or anything like this. But even for me, this is way too much. It is absolutely insulting that we have a former president and a dad of two daughters uh, doubting parents' sincerity when they express outrage over these types of images being available to students in public school libraries here in Virginia. Uh, Independent Women's Voice uh, thought it was important enough that a parent, parents see these images for themselves. And so we produced an ad, uh, tried to play it during the 11 p.m. hour uh, when adults are watching TV here in Virginia. Uh, but those TV stations deem this ad too explicit for adults adults to watch. And yet we have these images available freely and accessibly to public school students, teenagers, and even children. It is unacceptable. And it's absolutely insulting that we have uh, the Biden administration labeling parents speaking out about this as domestic terrorists and former presidents doubting our sincerity when we as parents try to have a voice and fight for our children. Yeah, there's an also. Oh, sorry. I'll get this. For those who might be listening and, and can't see it, I mean, the picture is very graphic. It's a graphic novel, I guess. It's, so it's cartoon-like, um, but it's literally pictures of somebody performing a sex act. And it's, yeah, not appropriate. It's not appropriate. And yet, so it was, as I was saying, it was uh, turned down by these multiple news stations uh, at the 11 o'clock hour, or, or rather television stations, at the 11 o'clock hour, where ostensibly kids are in bed, and um, and yet these are available um, in libraries. Um, there's other stuff. You know, there's the, the sort of um, indoctrination we're seeing in schools, and it, it galls me to no end that you now have people saying CRT isn't a real thing. Well, no, they don't have, like, CRT 101, okay? They don't have, like, and today... We will learn CRT. I mean, it's just so absurd. There's something called it's interesting when um, when the online learning, when uh, COVID shut down the schools and went to online learning, there was something called CL time. 
um, social and emotional learning. And I opted my child out of that and said, read a book, because he certainly wasn't reading a book much during the day or doing math or doing composition or learning how a sentence is structured. So um, I so he read during that time and the teachers were fine. They said, OK, well, but that is where a lot of this is going on, talking about how you identify, talking about how, you know, uh, you know, you, you've seen the, the, the stories of kids being told. There's a number of viral videos from Loudoun County of kids reporting being told that they should feel bad for the color of their skin or they should feel um, like, like victims. So there's a lot going on in Loudoun County, in Fairfax County, um, and in Alexandria City. And so the idea of, you know, Kelsey kind of mentioned this, the idea of being sort of gaslit um, mm -hmm. by politicians, by superintendents, by the school board, who then went even further and tried to get us all thrown in jail. It is incredibly frustrating. I think, though, there was some fear, and I, I was worried about this, that it would quiet parents. It would make them silent. And it had the absolute opposite effect. And certainly in Northern Virginia, where Yunkin did incredibly well, impressively well, um, I think it had the, I think all this sort of um, scheming to shut parents up from the school boards, from Merrick Garland, who, by the way, profits off this, you know, I mean, or is his son-in-law who owns a business that actually puts CRT in the school, um, you know, the, the FBI, and then, you know, all of these sort of grifters who are profiting off this CRT stuff and this sort of, you know, I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, I'm a diversity officer in a school. Um, I thought it would, I thought this would sort of shut parents up and strengthen those people, but it really didn't. It had the opposite effect. And it's been wonderful as a Virginia parent to see how the activation of parents has really had great results. Um, you know, it, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Julie, because I think there's this massive gaslighting campaign right now going on, especially in the wake of Youngkin's win in Virginia, uh, to say that this is a total myth. There's no CR CRT. I've even I've even seen flatly stated in an actual news piece, CRT doesn't exist. Exist. Okay? I know. And and by the way, right. uh, me, most of the time you're totally right. And somebody most of the time you're stuck. totally studied right, in Harvard right. Law School under critical race theorist, you know, professors and edited critical race theory pieces for the Harvard Law Review. It does exist. And they are right that it is a law school theory. Yeah. However, as Julie said, no, they're not teaching, you know, kindergartners or high schoolers critical race theory 101. What they're doing is implementing it. And what I explained to my kids who said to me, like, oh, I've never heard the word critical race theory. Right. What I explain to them is anytime your teacher tells you that this country is endemically and systemically racist, that the deck is stacked in America against black people, that the deck is stacked against immigrants, that no matter what they do, they can't succeed because of white supremacy. You are learning critical race theory. Exactly. Well, well so uh, sometimes it is that explicit. Um, but what you're talking about is, I think, really important that the gaslighting of parents of, of the lessons that they actually object to. I mean, all of this like brouhaha over what counts as critical race theory is completely disingenuous. Totally. Parents care about the content of the lessons, but sometimes it is just flat out lying on their part. So, for example, this is the Board of Education in Virginia when McAuliffe was governor. Um, so some of this, these images are from 2015. Um, there were also some memos that went around in 2019 and, and even 2020 uh, using this language, but I'm, I'm going to pull these up here. Um, you have a presentation, right, sent out, culturally responsive teaching, teaching practices that use 
critical race theory, right? CRT <laughs> makes learning more appropriate and effective for students from diverse backgrounds, right? Um, incorporate critical race theory lens, mm, culturally responsive alternatives, right? Like sometimes it is literally that explicit. This is the, the Board of Education in Virginia that is putting out these materials and delivering them to districts. So it's completely and utterly disingenuous. It's an attempt to... Um, shut parents up. It is. You're totally right, Julie. It's an attempt to shut parents up and it didn't work. Yeah, but also it's a t- an attempt to just not shut them up, to also ruin them, ruin them. Like this is, this is what we're seeing in the country in general. This is the whole, and I, you know, I, I know that like the words woke and, and culture and cancel culture and all this stuff is overused, but this does exist. And this was a very, and I will tell you, I think it really is like, I'm going to put my, I wish I had the piece of tinfoil to put my tinfoil hat on right now. <laughs> like, I know I'm going to sound a little tinfoil hatty, but look, you had an attack on IWF for posting maybe the most polite letter ever written in the history of letters by our policy director, Hadley Heath, who wrote a a, a letter to her preschool, okay, director saying, look, I, I really don't think in the most incredibly polite way, I can't, can't say that enough. Um, I don't, I don't know that we should really be asking preschoolers to wear masks. The, 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 the Washington Post wrote that up as if Hadley said, go beat your teacher. I mean, it was insane. This is, this was right around the same time that you had Merrick Garland sending that letter, the National School Board Association sent a letter to Merrick Garland. Then Merrick Garland sends a letter to the FBI. Okay. I mean, that's scary when if people think that, the, and then there's this video of Scott Smith, right? And there's no information on why he was so angry. Okay. And so, and they, and they humiliate him, by the way, they put the pictures him. of him with his shirt pulled up and his yeah, like absolutely. belly out, right. They're yes. trying to humiliate him and yes. make him the face of so I, you know, domestic terrorism in the yeah, United States. Yeah. So don't tell, I, I honestly, I think this was, I think this was a case of some coordination of them. And again, I know this sounds great, but, but it just, with the timing, it was all at the same time. Let's not forget one thing. This was right after McAuliffe made that enormous gaffe in the debates where he said, I don't really think parents should have much say in children's education. No, I don't. And he was emphatic about it. I mean, during the debates, he wasn't like, well, I think the teachers are the experts here. No, he was, he was mad. He was like, no, they shouldn't have a say in this stuff. So it all just seemed, look, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, the Washington Post reporter got on the phone with this guy, but it just, it did seem a little bit, the timing of it was like, there was a coordinated effort to not only gaslight parents, but scare them into silence. Yeah. And it's so funny, Julie, because you talk about Hadley's letter which they made it seem like a Koch-funded conspiracy. So essentially, anytime parents speak up, anytime parents raise questions, they are either racist, transphobic, or a Koch-funded conspiracy. Like, we're just supposed to be quiet. You forgot domestic terrorists. Right, exactly, exactly. Yes, domestic terrorists, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is coordinated in the sense that parents have had enough. And this is not just Loudoun County, right? This is not just Fairfax or Alexandria. These are red states, blue states. Parents are packing school board meetings with concerns about what their children are being taught, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's explicit sexual material, whether it's you know concerns about sports teams or bathrooms, right? Um, parents have had enough of this, especially after the last year and a half. I don't think you can overstate what the last year and a half of school closures and Zoom lessons have done, not just to show parents that 
you know, that their their children's education is a, a very low priority in the supposed education system, um, but also gave them a firsthand look into what their children were actually learning because they were yeah. sitting next to yeah. and watching these lessons. And I know, I know, I, I think my time is coming up to a close here, but I do want to say one thing. During the COVID shutdowns, <laughs> I mean, there's been all this, oh, parent, uh, teachers are heroes. Teachers are, oh, goodness. You know, where's the sympathy for parents? I mean, let's talk about how many women had to quit their jobs to stay home with their kids, okay, and help them, you know, as Mary Catherine, you you mentioned, and as she, she called it school butlering or something, it was it really butlering. It's such a great phrase. It's it's a great phrase. Yeah, right? Ham's phrase, yeah. Right. So, you know, I think that you have, you know, this situation where at the end of all this, it is astonishing after everything that parents have done to help really help schools get the get get education completed get kids through a year of education that parents are now vilified they're just absolutely vilified by by superintendents by these teachers unions i think there's a lot of horrified teachers who are afraid to speak up i have spoken to teachers who are like i don't understand what's going on here um but it's really the sort of big organizations surrounding public education that are the ones that are vilifying parents and it just amazes me after everything that parents have been through again helping their kids with education quitting their jobs you know, taking pay cuts so they have more flexibility or what have you. And and then to have parents treated as badly as they have been. It really is a shocking sort of um, uh, sort of turn of events, I would say. Julie, I know that at Independent Women's Network, there are a whole host of resources for parents and just people who want to get involved um, in policy disputes. Tell us just quickly before you go how people can access those. Yeah, so we have launched this new network called the Independent Women's Network, and you can uh, you can find it at iwnetwork.com. It is a, a, a members-only organization, members-only website. But one of the things we have on this website, and I think it's it's really perfect for for this this conversation, is we have a resource center uh, where we put things in there like talking points and how to write a letter to the editor, how to FOIA. That's a big thing you're all going to have to learn. How to FOIA, how to how to write an op-ed, um, how to use TikTok and Facebook and some of these other social media. Pro- I mean, look, I'm in, I'm I'm not going to say my age, but I'm I'm a little older, and some <laughs> of these things are a little confusing. And I don't ever want to do a TikTok video, but some might, right? It might be a good way to get your message out. And so we have all this guidance on on how to use these platforms and how to do these things that really activists do. And let's face it, conservative, I would say conservatives in general, but particularly conservative women, you know. They don't view them necessarily. They they don't view themselves as like I have. They want to raise their families. They want to be involved in their community in a helpful way in a positive way. But I think everyone needs to step it up a little and become a little bit more of a respectful um, activist. And the network will help you do that. Thank you, yeah. Julie. Thank you so much for coming on, and and also I couldn't second that that um, you know network recommendation more. It, it's not even just the resources, although those are fantastic that Julie just laid it out um, for you. But it's also a place to meet other parents, other citizens who are concerned about a lot of these things. We have people who are moderate. We have people who are on the on the right. Um, we have folks who are liberal, but they still find these things worrying. Um, and this is a place, to, I think, to find each other and to gather that courage that Barry yeah. White is always and talking this, about. And just the last thing I'll say, we also have like a daily must, which is curated articles from the best person we can all agree, Charlotte Hayes. And we have some fun. There's some, there's some funny things including, and there's some recipes like my recipe for banana bread. So you can't go wrong, but it is a place for friendship and fellowship, but also guidance. So check it out. 
And you don't want to miss Julie's recipes, trust me, because Julie right. is an amazing cook and both of so uh, I am not. So I just rely on Julie. Um, so well, cheers, lady. Thank lady, you, Julie. Cheers. Thank and, you, Julie. Cheers. We'll see you soon. Great. Um, we're actually going to transition now to our um, next guest, which is Philip Hamburger. He's a scholar of constitutional law and constitutional history at Columbia Law School. He's also the president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is a nonprofit, um, nonpartisan public interest law firm um, or group organization that works to protect civil rights, um, civil liberties of American citizens by violations, very, very importantly, by the administrative state, by administrative agencies, which seem to do so much of our governance these days. He's also written extensively on that problem. Um, but today we're going to talk to him a little bit about a piece he wrote for the Wall Street Journal a few weeks back uh, about parental rights, um, about about how those rights interact or how those First Amendment rights might interact with um, with the public school system and all of the issues that we were just discussing about Loudoun County. So uh, welcome, Professor Hamburger. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here at At The Bar. Thank you. Great to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I really uh, found your article in the Wall Street Journal fascinating. Um, and you begin the piece talking about sort of the history and purpose of public education. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little now for our listeners and sort of explain that framework and that background. Right, so public education as we know it is really uh, an invention of the mid 19th century. Um, in the 19th century, uh, people like Horace Mann and others worked hard to ensure that there was public education for all. And on the whole, that, that, that sounds very wholesome and good, um, but it, 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 there was more to it. Um, much of the backing for public schools came from nativists, native-born Protestant Americans who uh, were worried about Irish Catholic immigrants. They're worried about a, a group of people they thought were enslaved to papal, di papal dictates and the like. So um, there was a little bit of animus that along, went along with this. And so it's no surprise that public schools were used to essentially to inculcate a more Protestant approach to life um, amongst Catholic children. Um, now we can emphasize the history, but of course it's structural. The moment you have state schools, we call them public schools, I think we call them government schools. The moment you have government schools with government dictated curricula, there's always a danger for minorities. There's always a danger that a sort of homogenized vision of American life religion or of other things get imposed. And it's been used for this repeatedly, right? It was used for nativist purposes for its first century. Um, it may be used for other purposes now. I don't really care about which angle is being used. It, the danger is that uh, if you have government uh, education, someone will be using it against somebody else. And the title of your piece um, is, Is the Public School System Constitutional? Um, tell us briefly why you think it might not be. Well, this is not the way people traditionally have thought about it, but I think there's a free speech angle on this. Um, the difficulty is that education is largely speech, almost entirely speech. It's speech to children or with children, sometimes amongst children, but it's, it's usually speech directed by those above from teachers. This is, this is a little awkward. Now, if you are taxed to pay for a government message, you have no constitutional objection to that, 
neither to the tax nor to the message. But parents are in a slightly different position. Parents are required by law to educate their children. And then the government comes along and says, look, it's for free. You don't have to pay anything extra for this. And so there's tremendous economic pressure on parents to accept public education. And it's not just to accept the government, government education. It's not just government education messaging. It's also that that displaces their own. You know, they might have the evenings to teach their own messages. But when you take government education, you're displacing your own education, whether at home or in a school of your, of your choice that you pay for. And this is what's known as an unconstitutional condition. Um, now, this sound, may you think this sounds a little out there, right? <laughs> you're thinking, that's unusual. I hadn't heard that before. And it's true, you haven't heard that before. Um, but it's actually not that far out there. Um, it's actually squarely within Supreme Court doctrine. What's odd is that, of course, we have you know, a century and a half of institutional uh, history here. And so judges would be hesitant to overthrow that. But doctrinally, the claim is clear. Um, you know, I think one of the helpful things to, to think about here is what public schooling in America looked like prior to the common school system that you're referring to, right? And that's maximum 150 years, but in some states, it didn't really get going until after the Civil War. Florida, for example, um, didn't really have like a common school system until the Reconstruction era. Um, but, and then Massachusetts, obviously, much earlier, uh, had this kind of common school system, Horace Mann, all that, Jennifer over there representing Massachusetts. Um, but what American education or public education looked like prior to that was something a lot more like, actually, what some conservatives or some even libertarians um, argue that our, our school system should look like today, which is to separate the public investment from, as you say, the government running schools. So what happened before that is that there was a certain pool of money with which a town would either hire a teacher in a schoolhouse or that when the state started supplementing that, um, that pot of money, uh, local pot of money, right? They started supplementing it with state dollars. Often what they would do is they would just send it to the local school, whatever it was, whether it was a um, Protestant Christian school. At that time, it was more like denominations of Protestants, right? So whether that was um, whether that was a Methodist school, whether it was um, um, a different denomination of Protestant Christianity. And, and when that system started to blow up, it's exactly when and when the common school system started to become more popular, was exactly when you had that system run up against real religious pluralism in America, where people had been kind of in a detente among Protestant groups. They were suddenly very unhappy for their dollars then in a town to go to a Catholic school, right? Um, and so that's when we started to, to transition, as you say, um, Professor Hamburger, we started to, to transition into this, this common school that nevertheless, until well into the 1950s taught a uh, like a functionally soft Protestant right. perspective. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. The justification for this is that there's a compelling government interest um, in uniting people and, and giving the people a common culture in public schools. But of course, it isn't really the common culture. It's the government's vision of that being imposed, and which usually means majoritarian vision of it. Uh, so at all times, uh, the, when we have this, there's a danger that the minorities, be it religious in the past or political or otherwise cultural, are being uh, pushed into a common Americanism that actually isn't the common Americanism. It, it, it's something that someone wants to shove down their throats. 
Um, I should emphasize this is not distinctly conservative or, or libertarian or left-wing. I, I think this could be the, ben to the benefit of all parents of all backgrounds, perhaps particularly the poor, right? Um, it, would, it would be liberating to recognize education as speech. Can I, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I just want to throw in a little quotation here because although this may seem somewhat radical and new, I want to just point out that the key case in this is Brown versus Board of Education. Most people think Brown versus Board of Education was simply an equal protection case, uh, protecting against inequality that was called separate but equal. But actually, Brown versus Board treats grade school education as a government benefit subject to an unconstitutional condition. So that's actually the key precedent here. I'll just quote to you one sentence. Such an opportunity, public schooling, where the state has undertaken to provide it, is a right which must be made available to all in equal terms. It isn't as if it's a constraint, which is the normal way rights are, are, are injured. It's an opportunity, it's a benefit, but it's subject to a condition that in Brown was unequal. And in this instance, uh, it's an opportunity that's subject to a condition that is injurious to our freedom of speech. And there's no compelling government interest. The cases all say that education is, is compelling government interest, not government education, not public education. So it's pretty clear cut. So you, you also rely on, on Pearson and Society of Sisters here. Um, and sorry, something. Yeah, I'm probably mixing up my words. And it's been a while since I was in law school. But um, you, you also rely on Pierce as a major precedent here. And Andy McCarthy um, wrote a sort of rebuttal in, in National Review uh, to your piece in the Wall Street Journal in which he argues that you are misreading that case. Do you want to respond uh, yeah. to some of the arguments that he made there? Yeah, no, Andy's a good guy. I, I fear, so first, he misread my piece, which he sort of acknowledged in his second article. Um, he just saw Luton County and thought, oh, Hamburger's arguing that, that the that parents can control the curricula. I'm not arguing that. Um, it's the last thing I would argue. Uh, so I, I think he just misread my argument. And later he says, well, even if he had a different argument <laughs> than I assumed, he's misreading Pierce. Um, actually, no. So let me explain. Pierce versus Society, versus Society of Sisters was a case that comes out of Oregon in the mid-20s. Uh, the KKK, together with the Scottish Rite, Southern Jurisdiction, a Masonic group, had urged compulsory education and they were joined by the Democratic Party in this, and it sweeps Oregon. And so this compulsory public education, which squeezes people out of private schools. So the Society of Sisters uh, protests in a suit. They, they couldn't actually afford it. They're backed by the Hill Military Academy, which we don't really recognize, but we should recognize them because without them, there would have been the case. And it doesn't come up directly as a free speech case because it's not the parents suing, it's the school suing. So the court treated it as sort of as a substantive due process decision uh, reflecting the economic rights of the school. But at the same time, it also recognized that there was a little bit more to it. It talks about parental rights. So this, ever since there's been this constitutional conundrum, what was Pierce really about? If you say it's about substantive due process, there's a certain danger because that means it's ill-defined, whatever that right is, and it's not strongly based in text. In fact, substantive process is somewhat illusory sort of claim. So it's a weak interpretation of Pierce. 
So what I've done is come along and say, yeah, that's what they had to say to handle the case because of how it came up. But the right that's actually at stake here, the parental right of education that's in substance being recognized here, although not on the surface of Pierce, is actually the freedom of speech of the parents. Now, many people will say it's actually a religious liberty of the parents, and parents do have a religious liberty claim. It's just like the speech claim here. But it's not just religious parents. It's all parents who have this right. And so the clearest explanation of Pierce, although it's not on the surface of the case, is the free speech claim. So essentially in terms of, just to bring it back to practicality and and what parents can do and what their remedies are, um, you are, as I understand it, essentially arguing that parents can't constitutionally be compelled to send their children to state-operated public schools. And so their remedy then is to take them out um, and and go elsewhere, right? I mean, is that, that that's your argument. Well, you see, the, the problem is if you go elsewhere, it's at a very high price. And so sure. there's all this pressure to go to the public school. Now, as a law professor who started a civil rights organization, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is focusing on administrative questions and conditions, I must say that I think the solution is going to be litigation, not immediately, because I think people have first have to digest this somewhat different view of the world. But once Americans parents pushing it, I hope, and eventually the judges recognize this perspective, I think it's inexorable. And so there should be lit- eventually, there should be eventually litigation asserting one's right not to be pressured into public schools. Now notice, it shouldn't be a claim, I want exemption from taxes. You're not going to get that. Nor should it be a claim, I want money to t- send my kid to what a school I want. Those are legislative decisions. So it has to be a very modest suit for simply for declaratory judgment. After that, then, then the states will have some difficult decisions to make. But what they can't do is pressure us into government schools. And it doesn't matter how, whether it's severe indoctrination or just mildly contrary to one's taste. They, they, have no, they have no authority to do that without violating the First Amendment. So I read the, the um, sort of debate between you and my friend Andy McCarthy um, with great interest. And, and the way I sort of boiled it down, although you know he, he may have misread your argument partially because of the headline. Yes, but, but the way I, I, sort, of, the I way sort of synthesized um, uh, the the hamburger McCarthy arguments, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that it seems like it really boils down to a disagreement um, as to whether the problem can be solved democratically at the ballot box or um, whether it needs to be solved through competition and school choice. I don't know if that's right, but I I want to read a quote from Andy where he says, um, the First Amendment offers no quick fix here. The only way to solve the problem is through democratic accountability at the local level. Parents who have the greatest interest in their children's education must get themselves elected to school boards and make their voices heard in protest against progressive indoctrination. Now, I don't, I don't think you disagree with that. Um, I certainly don't disagree with that, but it seems as if you're saying, Andy's saying that's the only way to solve the problem. It seems as if you're saying we need much more. It's profoundly incomplete. I th- I, 
I like Andy. I generally think his writing is great. I think he could, his second article could have said, oops, I made a mistake, sorry, and moved on. <laughs> but he didn't do that. Um, look, political engagement can help sometimes. But there are many people who find themselves a minority of opinion without having the opportunity to win because they are in a minority. The First Amendment is all about protecting our freedom regardless of whether or not one's in a minority or in the majority. Each of us as an individual has that freedom of speech and no amount of optimism about the democratic process. And by the way, we don't have a democratic process, it's a Republican process, what's left of it. Um, no amount of optimism about Republican institutions, rather tattered as they are, or if in a pristine state, um, should lead us to abandon our constitutional freedoms. And it seems to me absolutely beyond doubt, each parent, sorry, each pair of parents, because then we get complicated if it's each parent, but each pair of parents have a constitutional freedom of speech in educating their children. And nothing can take that away, nothing. Um, so I was disappointed with that. I thought that was uh, not one of his better pieces. As he is in so many other ways, which I would never dispute. Um, let me ask you this: Why try to file this under the First Amendment rather than a distinct parental right to control your child's education? And I know that you're against the substantive due process, um, you know, angle of this. But even if you take kind of the pre-substantive due process. Uh, sort of tradition and say that this is this is a deeply rooted right in the American tradition to, to govern the upbringing of your children. Why try to put it underneath the First Amendment? Right. Why not try to like carve it out as, as a separate right that, that ought to be recognized? Look, I, I, I would not discourage anyone from litigating the substitute process claim. Uh, but, you know, when one brings litigation, one has, a, it's like going to a a smorgasbord or a buffet, you have choices, right? Are you going to have salmon first and, or are you going to start with the beef? I like to start with the beef. <laughs> Afterwards, when you finish the beef, you can try out the salmon. If that doesn't please you, then you can have some vegetables. And if that doesn't like you, you get a drink. You, you, you know, you, 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 there's a progression here. And it seems to me the strongest argument with the beef is, is freedom of speech. By far the strongest argument, it's rooted in the text. Um, it's abundantly clear. We have Brown versus Board as well as Pierce for us here. Um, and then there's the religious claim of, for religious parents, but it's much narrower because not all parents are religious and the secular parents equally have rights here. That's why free speech first, then religion. And then one can talk about Pierce, but Pierce, you know, Pierce recognizes a parental interest in educating the children with, and so it says it's a constitutional right, but doesn't really specify what it is. And it's much better if you have a piece of paper of the Constitution saying freedom of speech. That just is stronger. So what, what I think parents should do is start thinking in these terms. And that's why I'm so glad you're doing, having me here. Thank you so much. Because we need to get the word out. Parents need to recognize they have freedom of speech in educating their children. That doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. This is a big project. People have to reconsider 150 years of abuse of government schools. But you know, circumstances will make people think it afresh. So what would you, I mean, what would you tell a parent who's listening and says, okay, I get it. I get the idea that I have a first amendment right to, to 
control the education that, that my child hears and receives. Shout it um, on the streets, talk to your friends, uh, make it a living reality. You know, some of my friends here at Columbia um, were instrumental in the beginning of the gay rights movement. And we've had some wonderful conversations in which they explained to me how they did it. And the most important thing you start with are words. Um, and of course, not just words, but the truth. And this, this is a truth. It's there in the constitution. We have freedom of speech and parents are required by law to, to educate their children um, and have a free speech right in this, which is threatened when they're pressured to send their children to public schools. So it seems to me this has to be talked about. We need videos, we need debates, we need these sort of programs because once it seeps into the consciousness of the country, then it'll become a reality. But one has to get it, one has to do consciousness raising first before you just rush into court. Right. Uh, it's interesting because I, I had a debate with a, a teacher friend of mine recently um, who was saying, you know, I was saying, well, where did the teachers get the authority to undermine express parental wishes? Um, the specific thing we were talking about is if a, a child is experiencing gender dysphoria and that child wants to change his name and pronouns at school. Uh, and the parents are opposed to it. Why does the teacher get to undermine the parents and decide? And she said to me, well, um, she said two things. She said, it is the job of the teacher to affirm the desires of the student, not the desires of the parent, that they are there to serve the student, not the family. That was number one. And number two, she said, um, well, where do the parents get the right? Where do the parents get the right to say that, that it's their decision? In other words, the assumption by this friend was that the right was that of the school or the government. Um, and in order for, uh, for a parent to assert a right against them, you know, I had to, I had to come up with something specific. I hadn't read your article at the time or you hadn't written it. So I wasn't able to say, well, that right is, is, vested in the First Amendment, I, I simply made the, the converse argument, which I think Inez was getting at before, which is that, well, no, uh, human beings have certain natural rights, including the right to raise their family as they see fit, and the government can't infringe on that without a very good reason. And, and it's true, but the government does have an interest in educated populace. The danger is when it takes an interest in how they're educated and specifies, you know, specifying a certain sort of a civic education that's convenient to government. Tocqueville, you know, it takes a French aristocrat to come to America, coming to America to actually understand us. We think to do it. Tocqueville comes here and he warns against a tutelary government, a gov you know, a government that's saying, well, I'll help you. I'm going to teach you and approve you. You should be a little worried about this. My mother um, grew up in Nazi Germany. And um, fortunately, at the age of eight, when all the children were expected to raise their, their arm in a Nazi salute and um, to sing the Horst Wessel lead, she just refused, um, which had the blessing of her having to leave town very, very fast. <laughs> That's what saved the family. And it strikes me, um, we're far from that. Um, and it's in part because parents recognize their independence, that we don't have a submissive population yet. Um, but it's important to stand up for our freedom. Uh, Germany was a very civilized country, right? 
So the most civilized countries can end up being very uncivilized. Uh, and again, I don't want to attribute any of that to any of the people we might disagree with here. That's not the point. The point is simply that however civilized we are, we always have to be attentive to our freedom. And that means standing up for freedom of speech. It's the most basic of our rights. And if we can't stand up for that in, as to our children, what's the point? Is this simply an issue of evolving pluralism in a way um, that essentially we, you have the framers uh, putting together the Constitution, then obviously the Bill of Rights gets ratified in addition to that. Um, but still, the United States is quite a religiously homogeneous country, even though there are all of these denominations of Protestants. Um, but, but fundamentally, the United States is overwhelmingly Protestant. Um, of course, there are Jews, Muslims, Catholics in small numbers, but these institutions are built. Um, I'm, I'm thinking here something similar of like how religion got disestablished right, in, in uh, the, the, the states, right? Some states did not have an established religion, but most of the northern states had an established denomination of Protestantism until some of exactly these kinds of issues started cropping up. And, you know, do, do we send the school money to the Congregationalists or do we send it to the Methodists or do we send it to the Unitarians? And then all of a sudden there, there started to be a development of um, this push to abolish state support for the church um, in, in these states because nobody could agree on which church the money was supposed to go to, right? Um, and do you imagine that something similar might happen here in the sense that we're no longer talking about it in a religious context, we're talking about it in just various families want their children, um, you know, we have a very pluralistic country, we have wildly different views um, on, on all kinds of important things that children ought to be instructed in. Do, do you think that instead of fighting each other, there might be that kind of disestablishment of public schools? Or um, do you think that public schools are, or as commonly constituted, their common school idea is now so embedded in American culture uh, from the last 150 years that uh, that kind of disestablishment process is unlikely and and what we really need to do is, is sort of carve out exceptions and carve out the ability to uh, sort of dissent and to have your preferences funded equally right i, I think you're absolutely on point uh, that we're witnessing a sort of disestablishment movement i think that's absolutely on point it happens that it's a free speech argument but it is a, it is akin to disestablishment in the 18th century, in the late 18th century and the, and it is a result of our in some ways a result of our diversity uh, and diver that diversity is actually quite valuable uh, you know in the 18th century it already was religiously diverse at least amongst the protestants um, and that's what led to the disestablishment of the churches in the 19th century protestants find unity in beating up on catholics and because it was treated as the Protestant majority versus the dangerous Catholic minority, one ended up having essentially the defeat of Catholics in public or publicly funded institutions. Um, but America is much more diverse now, and it's hard to draw simple distinctions like that. And that's probably healthy. And it does create the social circumstances in which we can, I think we can rightly assert our free speech rights here. Now, what the solution is, that's more complicated. Uh, you know, do you should it be exemptions uh, from taxation? Should it be vouchers? Should it be something else that we haven't imagined yet? I can imagine, you know, all sorts of possibilities. And notice, we don't, I don't know, and notice um, 
this is not an argument against public schools. It's against the system. It's against a system that pressures you into public schools. We could still have public schools, but there'd be less financial pressure to push pushing you into them. So the net results could be complicated, could vary from state to state. I'm entirely agnostic about all of that. Um, I, I, I'm just a lawyer. I'm just pointing out a, a legal argument. And I think it's an important legal argument because it will liberate us from being pressed into uh, situations that we don't really want. And it's not just where there's indoctrination, just teaching that is no good. Imagine being poor in a neighborhood with bad public schools. Right. A disaster. Are we so enlightened that we're going to shove this down on the poor while we send, while middle class people or wealthy people struggle to send their kids to private schools? That's utterly corrupt and biased. So we, we need freedom of speech and education um, and guaranteed by the Constitution. Um, but what results? I'd actually like to see a diversity of possibilities. Then we'd experiment and we'd actually know. But back to your main point, yes, it's it's like it's like a disestablishment movement, but of a with a different legal angle. And I hope it has the same resounding success. <laughs> um, Jennifer, I don't know if you have another question uh, in the next two minutes, or if we want to start wrapping it up. I know. Uh, no, just thank you so much for, thank for you. joining us and for for elaborating on your excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal. I urge anyone who hasn't read it to look it up um, and thank give, give it some up. May I just add, um, amongst your listeners, to all of you, thank you for listening. And uh, you know, I, at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, we work on conditions cases. So whether it's on schools or other conditions cases or administrative cases, we're always always interested in hearing. We can't take all the cases, but if there's a case that will change unlawful power, uh, we'd love to hear about it. So thank you. Thanks so I, much. I should point out uh, for those not in the, the legal sphere that your representation uh, in uh, Professor Hamburger's organization will come free of charge to you. They are interested in, in changing the law and and, um, and and they will gladly review your case. And if, if, uh, if, if they have the resources, they will gladly take on your case uh, for free of charge to you. Uh, so it's always good to have excellent lawyers uh, like Professor Hamburger on your side. Um, this has been At The Bar. We hope you join us again in, in two weeks, Jennifer. At The Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org, and is also available for download on all your favorite podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and others. We'll see you in a couple weeks, as I said, at the next At The Bar. <laughs>